So as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 10, it starts out uh, with the expression, after this. And so the text wants us to, to remember where we are in the story. And so let me, let me get, get us caught up. So this ark kind of starts out with David and Nathan sitting around after the Ark of the Covenant had been brought into Jerusalem. They're drinking coffee after everything had settled down. And David says, you know what, I'm going to build, me, I'm going to build God a temple. I'm going to build God a house. Nathan says, hey, do whatever the Lord's put in your heart, brother. And then he goes home, and God gives him a vision and says, no, David's not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for him. And so Nathan comes and delivers that message. David uh, is in awe that the God that created the universe would consider him, much less bless him in this way, and make of him a great house. And so we, we saw the prayer that David prayed of thanksgiving to God. And then the text took uh, that, a, a whole chapter to show us essentially that God completed what he said he would do. And we saw that David had victories all around. And that everything that David laid his hand to, God blessed, and things went well. And then last week, we saw that David uh, sat down after everything, all the fights had ended. Everything had kind of settled down in the kingdom. And it said, uh, he asked, is there anybody still left in the house of Saul that I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So the, the Hebrew word that's used there for kindness is used again at the beginning of chapter 10 where it says, After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally. And the exact same word that's used kindness is used loyally in, in chapter 10. And so the writer there is, is repeating this phrase that's uh, obviously difficult for the, 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 the translators there to deal with. And it's a word that means I will deal covenantally, I will deal faithfully, I will use kindness, but, but I'm going to do the things that I said I would do. And so that brings us up to where we are. There's a king in Ammon that, that, that uh, David had worked with, had been around when, as he fled from Saul, and this king died. And when he died, his son Hanun steps in and becomes the king. And David uh, realizes that, you know, kind of like happens today. If there's a prime minister uh, uh, dies or, or a king somewhere or, or a president, then there's an envoy that's sent from the United States that's there. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're best buddies, but it's just a way to show respect and to show covenantly and kindly. And so David sees that this king has died. And so he sends, uh, if I could have the map up, uh, Ammon is not really far from, from where we, we are. There's Israel there, and, and the Ammonites are, if you look, uh, right in, toward the middle. And now some of you are looking at that saying, I can't see that. What's he even talking about? So right in there is Ammon, so it's close to where David is. And so he sends a group of people to, to wish them, you know, so, sorry about your loss kind of a thing. So these guys show up, and uh, this king... Hanun has his boys around him. And so when David's envoy shows up, all these, these advisors, these people who are around him, uh, they say, hey, you know David has not sent this, these guys. Do you think David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to, to you to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? And so this king gets really bad advice from his guys. 
which I'm going to say, this is for free, this isn't in the sermon, but you need to be careful who you hang out with. You need to be careful about who you allow to be in your life because over time you become like them. That's for free, though. You don't have to pay for that one. That's, that's just out there. He gets some bad advice, and so what he does is he takes all of David's guys and he shaves their beard off, half of it, and he cuts their britches off so that their hineys are hanging out. It's as delicate as a way as I can put it. And sends them on their way, which obviously is an effort to shame them. Now, we may read that and say, why didn't they just put on some pants and and shave the rest of their beard off, and it wouldn't have been a big deal. In that culture then, and in that culture today, shaving off half of a man's beard is a big, fat, hairy deal. In fact, in the 1920s, there were some Bedouins that caught a guy who had been coming through their land, and in a way to teach him to quit trespassing on where we're grazing our sheep and camels, they held the guy down and shaved half of his beard off. This was in 1920. And over 10,000 people died in the battles that ensued after that. So you can imagine, back up a few thousand years, how offensive this was. This was a way to say, hey, David, you ain't a real man. We are in control. So David finds out that, that his guys, the envoys, the, his, his representatives that had been humiliated, that that happened, he went to greet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And David told him, he said, look, all right, you all stay here in Jericho until your beard grows back in because I don't want you to have to go back to Jerusalem and be embarrassed. And so they had gone from, uh, let's see if I can figure out how to use this thing. So they were in Ammon in here, and, and the capital of Ramon is right there, and then Jericho is just right there. So they were just a few miles over, and David said, you all hang out here, let your beards grow back in, and then before you come back to Jerusalem. Now, they realized what they were doing. It was really kind of a, uh, half measure because they knew it was going to make David mad. Since they were representatives of David, it was just like they had done this to David. And David does not have a reputation for responding to these things politely. And so David obviously is very upset. And then, but the Ammonites realized that this was going to, ha- that bad things were going to happen. In fact, the way the text reads it, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David. I like that expression. Uh, I might start using that. When, you know, people make me mad, I'm like, you know what, they've just become a stench to me. I like it. Feel free to use it in your day-to-day conversation. Um, you'll have some people at work that look at you a little strange. Nonetheless, so when they realized that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rohab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. That is 33,000 mercenaries. So in Little Ammon there, they realize that they picked a fight that they can't win, and so they all pitched in their money together, And they went to Syria and said, hey, we're going to hire some mercenaries, 33,000 of them. Now, if you you ever find yourself the king of a small country, um, and there are 33,000 foreign soldiers on your border, troubles are brewing, just letting you know. So David hears that the Syrians' uh, mercenaries had come in, and he obviously recognized that there's going to be a battle, and so... He calls a war council. He says, 
the text. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. Now we got to deal with who these two people are. Joab is someone who has been with David since he was running from Saul. He is a crusty old warrior. He is not somebody that you would probably tap to teach your Sunday school class. He is, uh, I saw a t-shirt on a guy the other day that was, uh, had a Vietnam veteran's hat on, and he had a t-shirt, and on the back of it said, Fear old men in professions that kill you when you're young. There you go. He is a not a nice guy. He is a person who has a reputation as a warrior. He is an old man. Let me tell you a story that happened with Joab just a few years before this. Remember, uh, first of the year we started here, David is, uh, Saul is dead. Saul's son is claiming the kingship of ten of the tribes. And the other two, uh, one of the tribes, or the 11 and one, David is king over Judah. And the other 11 tribes are, are claiming kinship with Saul's son. But they're battling back and forth. And what the text tells us in 2 Samuel 3 is that there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger while the house of Saul became weaker. Now, Saul's primary general was a guy named Abner. And Abner was working for Saul's son, and Saul's son and Abner get sideways with each other over some women. And so Abner comes to David and says, all right, all these battles are going on. You're king over Judah, but God has called you to be king over all of Israel. As the general over all of Saul's troops, we can work a deal. And so Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people. So Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron. David had made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all of Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you. So here, Saul's primary general, the guy who was in charge of all of the troops over Saul's house, comes to David and says, look, I'm going to put all this together. We don't have to fight anymore. We'll overthrow Saul's son. Not a big deal. I'm going to hook you up. The problem was is that Abner and the guy that we're talking about today, Joab, had beef with each other, like in a big way. Abner had killed Joab's brother in battle many years before. And Joab, being the crusty old warrior guy, wasn't somebody to forget. Now you've got David's whole kingdom on the line here. Abner has come and said, look, I can bring you the other 11 houses. We can work this out. They, David, Arner's... Abner and his men welcomes him, gives him food. Everything's going great. The wars are about to be over. So Joab, who is in the meeting, in the meal, when all the handshaking happens, all the diplomacy occurs, Joab came out of David's present. He sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. David did not know about it. And Abner returned to Hebron. So Joab took him aside 
into the midst of the gate. So here's what happens. There's this huge diplomatic meeting. Abner and David shake hands. David's about to be king. It's all dependent on Abner coming over to David's side. He leaves. Joab says, hey, I need to talk to you about something. Abner comes back to Hebron. Joab puts his hand around Abner's neck. Let's talk about this. They walk out toward the gate, and then Joab takes his sword and sticks it in Abner's stomach and says, you killed my brother. He doesn't care about the diplomacy. He's the kind of man that does diplomacy at the end of his fist. He's the kind of guy who says, sure, we'll talk about this, and your next conscious thought is in the ER. He is a hard man. David is so upset that Joab killed Abner. But one of the things I noticed, David says a bunch of stuff. He says, Joab, I I just pray that nobody in your family ever that there's no time that in your family they're eating a leper and somebody with a discharge. But what David doesn't do is kill Abner. And that's really, if you read about David's character, that's kind of shocking. He knew that what Joab did was wrong, but he still knew he needed Joab. Because there are some people that when you get in a fight, you just want them on your side. And Joab was that guy. And so, It says that David got Joab and he got his mighty men. Now, there are two or three different places where David's mighty men are listed out. There's, um, the Bible says there's 30 and three. And if you take all the people in the different lists, there's about 37 names that are given. So we know that we're saying we're around 30 folks and then there were three. These were the guys who when David was fleeing from Saul and one day he makes kind of this offhanded comment. He was sitting there and he goes, oh man, what I would give for a glass of water drawn from the well in my hometown. He's just running his mouth, right? That night, these 30 mighty men go, and Bethlehem, David's hometown, is being controlled by the Philistines. They go fight their way into the well. They go back to back, swords in hand, while one of the guys goes and draws a bucket of water out of the well, and they take David some water from the well in Bethlehem. They didn't ask permission to go get it. These were the guys who would go take it. In fact, David was so upset that they had risked their lives to bring him a glass of water, he poured the water out on the ground. He said, I can't drink it. That'd be like drinking your blood. These guys were hard chargers. These guys were, and the Bible lists them out. There was a guy uh, who was actually one of Saul's sons named Ishbael. There, there was a huge long list of these guys, and they all, some of them were Jews, some of them weren't. Some of them were big men, some of them were little men. It's like any group of guys, you've got people all over the place, but one of the things you could know, they could scrap. In fact, one of those guys we're going to hear about in next week's sermon's name was Uriah. He wasn't a Jew, he was a Hittite. He was one, these were the guys that were with David through thick and thin. They fought beside him. They looked up to him. They respected him. They loved him. So David got Joab, got his mighty men, and said, hey, get you some men together and go deal with this problem. So they are, off they go. So you've got Joab, and you've got this group of men, and you've got the, the foot soldiers of Israel, and they go down to meet with the Ammonites. So what happens is, is you've got every city, it's got a wall behind it, around it. And the gate of the city, the Ammonites muster up. So you've got all these people out in the field. Joab comes out with his men. He sees that he, you've got 
the wall and you've got the Ammonites with the wall on their back ready to fight. Then you've got a break and then you've got the Israelites here. And then behind them, they've got 33 Syrian soldiers. At no point in any military tactic do you want to be caught in the middle of a pincer movement where you've got people to your front and people to your back. The text really just kind of gives this as an aside, but this is a horrifying situation. And Joab stands in front of his men. And he said, he said, when Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in the front and the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrian. So he told his mighty men, all right, you turn, you face, take the best guys you've got, and you face the 33,000, me and everybody else, we're going to face the Ammonites. And then he goes on and says, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew up near to the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. There's no indication in the text that they even fought. It's like he drew up his guys like it wasn't no thing that he was caught in the middle of a pincer movement. And when they get ready to fight, the Syrians run away, which is, by the way, what I titled the sermon. Because in my mind, I can just hear the Monty Pythons get, run away. And so they ran. So once the Ammonites realized that their massive army that they had just hired out was running, <laughs> they didn't fight either. They go, all right, you know, this is just a big misunderstanding, guys. Hey, seriously, as they got behind their walls. Now, once the king of the Syrians, and we don't have Syria on the map because it's so far over here, once the king of the Syrians realized that his people, who he was just hiring out as mercenaries, had just fled before David, they knew that they couldn't let that stand. And so when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated, they gathered themselves together. Hadadazer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They sent close to 600 miles away. They brought Syrians from beyond the Euphrates. They came to Halam with Shabak, the, the commander of the army of Hadadazer. And David gathered all of Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought against them. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shabak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadazar saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. And so... The Syrians array up against David to say, you can't, we can't just let this stand. And then David gets all of his folks together and defeats the Syrians in a big way. You read the numbers or heard the numbers. Okay, so here's what's going on in the big arc of the story. And I, I got to be honest, when I first was reading through 2 Samuel and laying out what each sermon was going to be, this chapter I thought in my mind, Okay, we might skip this because what is happening is, is the author here is trying to, A, introduce the Ammonite Wars because they're going to play a big part of the rest of the story because the Ammonite Wars are going on 
And David should be involved in the Ammonite wars, but instead he's going to be at home watching people take a bath. So that's one of the reasons why it's introduced. The other reason why it's introduced, David's mighty men are, are talked about several times to let us know that one of David's mighty men, Uriah, is still close to David. And it's just kind of a placeholder there to let us know that we've shifted gears. It started out with David acting faithfully to Saul's, uh, to Jonathan's family. We see David continuing to act faith, faithfully in, around the outside world. So we see David acting faithfully in, inside of Israel, David acting faithfully outside of Israel. And so we see that David is doing the things that he wants to know, needs to be doing. And so I thought... Do we really want to take a whole Sunday to go over that? I could probably just cover that in five minutes and, and when we get to the story next week. But then as I was reading it, the fact jumped out to me that in this story, they deal with a, a, the death of 40,000 Syrians like that. I mean, it was no big deal. But the writer here spends a paragraph and a half to give us Joab's speech. And so I thought, why is the, the, the writer who's just blowing through facts. I mean, he's not giving us details about anything. He said, okay, and then the series came and did it, and then this happened. I mean, there's some pretty big military movements are occurring. We're not getting any details. He's giving it almost like all of these stories are asides so that we get to Joab's speech. So I thought, well, then there's something here in this speech that God wants us to get. What is it that Joab is saying? And so I spent a lot of time reading and, and digging and looking at the speech. And for a while, I was honestly saying, well, it, it's a pretty standard speech. I mean, it's, it's, you know, hey, we're in a rough situation. There are people in front of us, behind us. This is what we're going to do. God's in control. Let's go. So why, why has the writer here given us so much information? And then it hit me because of who's giving it. This is not a guy who we expect to be dependent on God. This is not a guy who in his life we look at and go, this is somebody that I want to follow. I have never in my life, I don't even know what the Joab flannel graph looks like. I've never heard anybody say, you know what, men, be a Joab. Because you read the Bible stories, you go, this is the guy that stabbed Abner in the gut. This is not the guy that I want to be like. And yet, there's a pause here to see Joab is crying out to God. And so, the thing that's shocking about this story and this speech is who's giving it. Invariably, whenever there's a mission trip planned or we're going to go do something, I'll have somebody come up to me and say, Preacher, I, that's not, I can't do that. I mean, I'd love to go to, to Haiti with, with you and Susie, but you know what, I, I'm just not, I ain't that guy. I work for a living. And they, people think that unless you walk around with your Sunday school material from when you're going to teach rolled up in your back pocket, that you can't do anything for God. People have let the enemy convince them, and they've convinced themselves that if I'm the kind of guy that's got calluses on my hand, if I'm the kind of guy that gets greasy at my job, if I'm the kind of guy that does pulp wooden, then God can't use me. 
Or moms who say, you know what I do every day for a living? I change diapers. God doesn't want to use me. I spend my free time telling, sit down, get, 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 get off that, stop that. So what has God got to do with me? And so we see here in a very unlikely candidate who maybe for just a brief window here lets God use him mightily. And I'm here to tell you that if you look at the 12 disciples that Jesus got, they were just ordinary people. There was tax collector, there was a, a guy who was a militant anti-Roman, there was a lot of guys that were just Joe blue-collar folk. They got dirty in their job, they did work that was boring, they did work that was hard, they did work that when they got home at night, they had to smear some Bengay on their back. They were m- men that were just ordinary guys, that once they said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you lead me, they did amazing things for God. And so what I see in this story of Joab is, if you let God use you, I don't care who you are, I don't care where you've been, I don't care what degree you have or don't have, if you will turn your heart over to God and say, do with me whatever you will, you can change the world. You see, we limit God because we have convinced ourselves that unless we have an MDiv or unless we have this or unless we have that or unless we have this or unless we have that, I can't serve God. And I'm here to tell you that's a lie from the pits of hell. Not only can God use you, he will. And so that excited me. And so I started looking at what exactly did Joab do here that let God use him? And I saw three things that made Joab usable in the hands of God from his speech. So all that's introduction to these three points. The first thing that he did was God can use you when you recognize that in life we are to be serving his people. You notice he said, be of good courage, let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. If you want to serve God because you want people to see you serving God, you're not going to be effective for the kingdom at all. I tell the staff here, and let's just be honest, I tell myself, there is a difference between worshiping God and worshiping my service of God. One is an unbelievable, unbelievable, beautifully, un, <clears throat> if only I spoke for a living. Um, one is an unbelievably beautiful thing as we serve each other, and the other is an unbelievably abhorrent, wicked thing because we serve ourselves and we mask it. We paint a picture on the outside of it to make it look like we're serving others. See, me as I serve. Jesus told story after story after story about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees as they would do things openly so that people would see them. And they would shout and go, oh, I'm fasting. I'm so hungry today. Thank you, God, that I'm so holy that I fast. They would pray 
and out and open so that people would see their prayers. And they would say, oh God, thank you that I'm not nearly as wicked as all these people. And Jesus said, don't do that. Don't be like that. Be the kind of person that when you're praying, you're in your closet. Nobody even knows you're praying. Be the kind of person that when you help people, you don't want your name out there. You want people to be served because you're serving people. When we do that, that can become an unbelievably powerful tool in the hands of God. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many felony arrests you've had. I don't care what has happened in your life. If you turn and start serving people, it is unbelievably powerful. In fact, the whole point of the church is that we're supposed to be falling all over each other to serve. And yet somehow we've turned that somehow into, I'm not going down to that church because they ain't doing it the way I like. So the first thing that I see in Joab is, is that God can use you mightily when you recognize that we're to be about serving his people. Second thing that I see here in Joab's life is that God can use you when you recognize that life is his story. Be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. You see, and this is just, I'm just being honest with you. If you watched most of the preaching that I see on television, you would think that Jesus came and died on a cross so that you could drive a fancy car. We even, in some of the language that we use when we're telling people about Jesus, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And we give the impression that Christianity is designed so that it makes everything go right in your life. Your marriage will be perfect. Your car will crank on the first try. Your hair will have more bounce. You won't have to do your nails more than once a month. Everything's going to be great. Because if you follow Jesus, you're happy all the day. And then, that's not true. In fact, the Bible says all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But on top of all that, we live in a broken world. So when you go out and you try to crank your car and it says, click, 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 click. Then you go, what have you done to me, God? You promised I'd be happy all the time. Or you spend an hour rolling your hair and you walk out and it's flat. God, you failed me. That's not something I personally experience. But I hear from my wife, this is quite traumatic. But real life doesn't look that way. The preacher says, if you get saved, then your marriage will be perfect. And then you get saved and you walk in and you and your wife or yelling at each other, and you think in your mind, God's failed me. You see, the story of your salvation was designed by God so that he would get the glory. It's about his glory. And sometimes God lets bad things come into our life so that it will glorify him when we as believers act the way we're supposed to believe, be acting. 
Because which tells the world that we serve a powerful God? If I've got everything that I need and I go, hey, I trust God. And they're looking at us going, well, what is there to trust him for? Or if when I'm struggling with somebody that I love being diagnosed with cancer and my car breaks down and my hair doesn't have any bounce and everything's gone horribly bad during that day and yet we still say, God is enough. If I'm left on the side of the road with a towel wrapped around my waist because the bank's come and took everything else and I say, that's okay, God is enough. That's when God's glory is proclaimed. Just a few days ago, we went and talked to... um, Frances Pearson, and she was sharing with us, and we were talking about how when Steve was sick, Steve was a member of this church for many years, a faithful deacon in this church, and as he, we now know, was slowly dying of cancer, every time he would be in the bathroom throwing up, he would look at his wife and say, God is so good. That proclaims that we serve a mighty God because he is good whether our situation's good or bad whether i don't know how i'm going to pay the bills everything's gone south if we proclaim the majesty of god then the world looks at that and goes now that's weird if everything's going the way i want it and i say god's good they go well duh if i was driving a fancy car like that i'd say god's good too the other thing in that that we have a hard time wrapping our our brain around is Joab said, be courageous and that God is in control. We sometimes act like those are two separate things and they can't fit together. We say, God, I pray that you provide for me. And then we sit at home and wait for God to provide for you. He said, God's in control. And then he sharpened his sword. I mean, I'm sure you've all heard the story about the guy who is the, it's flooding and he gets up on the roof. And a guy comes by in a boat and says, hey, get in. And he says, oh, no, I'm praying for God to save me. The boat goes on. Another guy comes back, and the guy says, get in. The flood's coming up. He goes, no, God's going to provide for me. Finally, the water's up to his waist. The helicopter's up. Grab hold. Let's go. And he says, no, God's going to provide for me. And then he dies and goes to heaven. And he said, God, I thought you were going to provide for me. And God said, I tried three times. So I'm going to pray that God provides for me and then I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to pray that God heals me and then I'm going to take the medicine that the doctor prescribed for me. There is no contradiction there. We work as if God was going to do nothing and we pray as if we can do nothing. That's exactly what we see in Joab's life. Him praying, God's going to do whatever he wants to do. We can work as hard as we want to, and if God wants us to lose this battle, we're going to lose. But then he took his knotted up with muscled arms and grabbed his sword, and he went and whooped somebody. And so you can't pray, God, please protect me from this temptation, and then never open your Bible. You can't pray, God, I, can't, I don't want to have any arguments with my wife anymore and then always fight for what you want. That doesn't make any sense. So what we see in Joab's life is that he understood, at least at this point in his life, that there's nothing contradictory about me praying for God to move and then me doing everything that I can do to make that happen. 
And then the final thing, and I, honestly, up until about Thursday, this was where I would say as we come to the time of invitation. But then God showed me something else. The words that Joab ends his speech with is pretty close to a quote from Deuteronomy 31.6 where Moses was speaking to people. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And so the final thing is is if you want to be used mightily by God, you have got to be in his word. That's our food. That's how we feed as believers. If you're struggling with your walk day to day and you're not in God's word, be Joab. Pick it up. Read it. You don't have to read 55 chapters. It's so funny to me that we humans as we make you know every year this happens people will well, on January 1st they'll make all these I'm not going to eat any sugar ever again I'm going to run a marathon and I'm going to the gym every day for the next for the rest of my life in fact I, I hate going to the gym the first two weeks of January because people are in there, they don't know how any of the equipment works, they're wandering around in the way, they're standing around exercising their fingers on their phone while they're in the gym, and, and usually by the second week of January, all those people are gone, and you can get back to doing your normal thing. Because we say we're going to do all this stuff, and, and usually I'm going to read through the Bible this year. If you're a Christian, that's usually on that list. I'm going to never eat sugar again, I'm going to go to the gym every day, and I'm going to read through the Bible. And then they'll read along until they get to the begots in, in Genesis, and that's the end of it. Just pick God's word up. Go to the book of Luke. Go to the book of John. And read a little bit. Start out where you are. You don't have to read the New Testament tonight to be a believer. Start out with one verse. And just read that one verse. And as you go through your day at work, kind of think about that verse. Let it meditate and roll around in your head. Think about how, what does that mean to me? How does that apply? What does that say about Jesus? How does that apply to what I'm doing? Just one verse. Because quite a lot of, quite a, clearly I just need to sit down because quite a large number of us say, I need to do that, I need to do that, I need to do that while the dust gathers on their Bible. And you know what? The same thing applies to the to gym and eat. Instead of saying, I'm never going to eat sugar again, take one bad thing out of your life a week. Instead of saying, I'm going to go run a marathon, go walk around the block tomorrow. And then add and add and add and add. We want all or nothing. You've got to be in God's word to grow. You've got to be. And so this week, let's commit to starting out and being in God's word. Father God, as we come to this time of invitation, Lord, if there's anyone that has not been in your word that looks at the life of Joab and says, I want to be a man after God's own heart. I want God to use me. God, I pray that you would convict. God, I pray that they would come down and pray and confess their inaction as sin. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that's not a believer, God, I pray that they would, they would reach out. God, if there's anybody that's watching on live stream right now, Lord, that, that doesn't know you, I pray that they would, they would reach out to that contact information. And God, we pray if there's anyone in this room that, that wants to join this church to serve you, that they would do so. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.